Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Business of Cyber. Our guest today is Lance Spitzner, the Director of Security Awareness at the SANS Institute. Lance is well known as one of the industry leading thinkers in security awareness and the management of human risk. So I'd love to start with a quick thank you to Frank Kim for the introduction to Lance. And as you guys know by now, my focus with the show is to highlight the non-technical aspects of the security industry. So I talk with CISOs about the leadership aspects of their roles. I talk with investors about supporting the next great security businesses and CEOs and founders uh, about getting those businesses off the ground and managing them on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is exactly why I was excited to chat with Lance about the management of human risk. Influencing behavior is very different than simply implementing a technology control. And it requires different skill sets and different tactics. So this is what Lance and I dig into throughout the course of our conversation. It's how do you approach and manage human risk within your business? So without further ado, I'll kick it over to Lance Spitzner and hope you guys enjoy. Well, the party is off to a good start. Lance, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, welcome. Thanks, Joe. Very good. Well, as a way to kick off, um, I know you've been in the industry for a long time and are now an instructor uh, over at SAN. So tell us a little bit about how you got into cybersecurity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's an interesting path. So I originally was an officer in the Army Tank Corps. So I was a uh, tank officer. And in the military, one of the key things they teach you is know your enemy. So as a tank officer, I was very, very much involved in the whole idea of how does the enemy operate? So when I left the U.S. military, I went to grad school, got my MBA. And while in my getting my MBA, I was very much interested in technology. So worked for a consulting firm that specialized in Sun Microsystems and Solaris operating systems and started off as an IT admin while getting while in grad school. And from there, went in really into cybersecurity. And my real passion was cyber intelligence. Know your enemy because there was so little work in that field 20 years ago, 25 years ago now. Um, so that's really how I started. Cool. Okay. How did that lead to you where you are today? Uh, so once again, interesting path. So about first half of my career was really on the technical side. So firewalls, system hardening, network security, network forensics, cyber threat intelligence, a lot of fun, but about 10 plus years into my career, I really started noticing, hey, this technology is great, but the bad guys keep getting in through the human side. If we don't address this human issue, we're going to continue to lose this battle, something I even more firmly believe in today. So about 10, 15 years ago, I switched sides there and went from the tech side to the human side. And that's where I've been since. So when you made that uh, that transition from as you said, the maybe more technical parts of the uh, the industry to the more human side. What was the first role you had or your first exposure to the, the human side of, of cyber risk? So the big motivator was a lot of work with my the HoneyNet project. So we were deploying all different types of honeypots and watching and developing and learning about the cyber attackers, TTPs, if you will, and their tactics, techniques, and procedures. And the more I learned, the more I realized we really had to address the human side. So about, like I said, 10, 15 years ago, how I started is I really switched 
on the human side by starting my own company and helping consult with and work with organizations around the world, building awareness programs and addressing the human issue. And it was really a global job, which I love. I just love the people side. And over time, I kind of migrated over and working with SANS Institute, both teaching about human security, but also helping SANS develop a business unit, SANS Security Awareness, dedicated to the human side. Cool. Okay. So let's uh, let's dig into a couple pieces of that. So you mentioned uh, sort of the first foray was starting the HoneyNet project and deploying honeypots. Can you, maybe those in the audience who are, are unfamiliar, can you just define those pieces and, and maybe share like how that's a critical piece of the human <laughs> piece of cybersecurity? Sure. So like I mentioned, when I first went into cybersecurity, there was very little knowledge about who the cyber threat actor is, how they operated, and why. I mean, nowadays we know that as cyber threat intelligence. But, you know, in 98, 99, there really wasn't a lot out there. And like I said, with my military background, I really needed to understand who the threat actor was. So started deploying honeypots and really developed this concept of a honey net. You know, why just put one system out there, but an entire network of real systems behind a firewall and let's watch them come in. In, you know, 20, 25 years ago, that was pretty revolutionary. So we developed a really cool team of volunteers. We published all sorts of information. And that really helped both develop my technical skills, but also my understanding of the cyber threat actor today. And in a lot of ways, the fundamentals haven't changed. Um, mm. They're always going to come in the easiest way possible. And that's been a constant for the past 20 years. Yeah. Okay. So if that conceptually is, you know, creating the infrastructure to learn about attackers to a degree, mm -hmm. is that still uh, done today in large enterprises or just businesses in general? It is, but it's a little bit on the quiet side. I mean, if you're going to be deceiving the enemy or learning about the enemy, quite often you don't promote the idea, hey, we got these honey not, honey net, honey pot technologies out there. And also, it's not for every organization. The organizations that tend to deploy these technologies are security companies that specialize in cyber threat intelligence. They collect the data, they develop the reports, and then they sell the, the, uh, the intel, if you will. So yeah. it's a small community that's using the technology, but the whole world is leveraging the results of the technology. So yeah, just about every cyber threat intelligent, AV company, things like that out there, they are deploying something like this. Okay. You know, one thing you always hear about the, the security industry is that it's uh, it's ever evolving, right? It's changing, it's, it's maturing, but also the sophistication of attacks is changing and threat actors are... Uh, you know, becoming more sophisticated and dangerous, for lack of a better word. So I'm curious how you've seen that evolution. And then, you know, with something like honeypots or just understanding the attackers in general, how you've seen that evolve over the course of your career as well. So I would both agree and caution on that idea. They're getting much more advanced. I okay. would say they're getting much more organized. So they're still coming in... What are the primary ways of getting in? Phishing, 
in stolen credentials. And it's been the top three that way for the past three, four years. Verizon DBIR, the Microsoft Digital Defense Report, the CrowdStrike, all the reports are telling us the same. The phishing and stolen credentials. And to be honest, that's really not that advanced, especially if you look at these phishing emails. The bad guys are doing a little bit more research. I would argue where the sophistication has become is the level of organization behind the cyber attacker, the threat actor. 20, 25 years ago, it was an individual on his own, crafting his own malware, hacking into the systems, transferring the money. Now it's an entire industry because there truly is so much money involved. You have people specializing in developing and supporting the malware, people specializing in getting into the networks and then selling the access. You have people then leveraging that access. Then you have the data brokers. Then you have the money launderers. So I would say the sophistication is not so much, and this is a generalization, in how they're attacking. It's the sophistication is behind how this industry is developed, how they're specialized, things like that. Got it. Okay. So the, the techniques or the methods haven't really matured that drastically or become more sophisticated. It's more the, the industry and the, the market behind the scenes that's progressed over the last and, 20 years. And there'll always be your outliers. I mean, like solar winds, yeah. that was sophisticated. That was, it was very, very impressive, but the vast majority of your BEC ransomware data strikes, things like that all really come back to phishing and or password credentials. Mm -hmm. Like That's, I said, it's the fundamentals. The, the cyber attacker is not going to get an award for coming up with a unique technique. Most cyber threat actors have bosses, have mortgages, have PowerPoint, have families. They want to get home at the end of the day. Yeah. They're going to come in the easiest way possible. And for now, that's people. Yeah. So that's a great segue into... Uh... I know when when Frank introduced us and I just looked at your background a bit, one of the reasons I was excited to chat with you is to talk about this concept of of human risk, because the first thing I thought about was, well, that, that can mean a lot of different things, right? Like what we've been talking about thus far, which was gaining a real understanding of, of the threat actor and who they are, what's the infrastructure around them, what are their motivators, et cetera. But it's also... Uh, you know, about employees, right? Because like you said, if someone clicks a phishing link, then that's maybe the path of least resistance for uh, an attacker who's motivated to gain access to a, a company's network or, or critical data. So I'm curious um, just to hear you speak to that for, for a few minutes in terms of how you begin approaching and, and maybe within the context of one of your courses, how you begin uh, you know, educating someone on the risk that is sort of an internal employee and how to uh, set them up for success so that they can uh, ensure that they're, you know, keeping their own business secure. Sure. So just let's start with the fundamentals first, why and then what? So why human risk? Well, if you look at all the reports, like I've mentioned, um, Verizon DBIR is one of my favorite. It's one of the best and well-known. In the past three years, the report has found 80 to 85% of all breaches involve the human element. So it's no longer just a technology gain. We have to address the human. Now, what do we mean by human risk? Really two things. One, A, the human is the primary attack vector for cyber threat actors like phishing or passwords, or human risk really can be accidental. 
And by accidental, that means trying to do the right thing, but causing harm through error. And my favorite two examples are autocomplete in email. You know, you intend to email a fellow employee with sensitive data, and then you accidentally email your kid's football coach because they share the same name. Or the growing one now is the cloud. Um, IT admins are pushing sensitive data to the cloud, digital transformation. But, you know, the cloud is confusing, not only for you and me, but IT admins, developers. And one of the biggest areas of accidental breaches is when you put sensitive data to the cloud, you think it's locked down, but you're accidentally sharing it with the entire world. So to me, human risk primarily means either people being targeted or making mistakes. Got it. Okay. So to keep maybe digging into that a bit, sort of in, in your courses, right? Like if I'm a... a I run security awareness for a particular organization, and you know my job is to, uh, to put it simply, right, educate and uh, ensure that or individuals within my organization are empowered to not forward sensitive information to their football coach, right, or their kid's football coach. Um, how do you begin sort of educating me on that, or, or me taking those lessons to bring into my business? Sure. And there's been a fundamental shift. In the past, it was called security awareness and people were focused on education and training, but that was primarily a compliance focus. Mm -hmm. There's a real fundamental shift in this field where security awareness may be what we do, but the why is really managing human risk. So a lot of change we're seeing is it's no longer I'm the security risk, uh, security awareness officer, I'm the human risk officer. So first, there's a fundamental shift away from, hey, it's education and training to more, hey, it's managing human risk. And what does managing human risk mean? Well, it means, yes, we're training and educating people, but we're also enabling them. How can we make security simpler? Password managers, biometrics, simplifying policies, automating patching, anything we can do to enable people to be more secure. Ultimately, managing human risk is really all about changing human behavior. If we can change people's behavior and have them exhibit more secure behaviors, the more secure we're going to be. And ultimately, the more motivated somebody is and the more enabled they are, the more likely they exhibit those behaviors. Got it. Okay. So can you speak to maybe in, in practice? how you go about enabling or changing that type of behavior? Sure, absolutely. It's a three-step process. And when I say three-step, three-step strategy-wise. So if I'm working with the security awareness officer, human risk officer, security culture officer, security influence officer, lots of different titles out there. Yeah. I'll help them develop a strategy. And the strategy is a three-step process. First, what's the goal? Manage human risk. So the three-step strategy is A, what are your top human risks? Can't manage them all, let's prioritize. B, what are the key behaviors that manage those risks? If you say passwords are a risk, what are the key behaviors you want people to exhibit with passwords? Phishing a risk, what are the key behaviors? Cloud a risk, what are the key behaviors? So first, what are the top risks Two, what are the behaviors that manage those risks? And then three, 
then how do we motivate, engage, and train our workforce to exhibit those behaviors? So three key strategic steps to managing human risk. Cool. And how, how did you come to identify those three pillars as the strategy <laughs> for managing human risk? Well, first of all, it's very, very similar to the whole idea of technology side. How do we manage risk on the technology side? Well, what are the risks? What are the controls that manage those risks? Hmm. So security awareness is very, the same, very much the same. What are the top risks? What are the controls that manage those risks? The behavior, the only difference between the tech side and the human side is on the tech side, it's very easy to install the controls. With the human side, it's a little bit more challenging because you have to, the control is the behavior. So we have to get people to change those control, um, those behaviors. The benefit with the human is once you get people to exhibit those secure behaviors, the benefits are long-term, whereas when you implement a technical control, it's a cat and mouse game or constantly, you know, bad guys are coming with ways to overcome them and things like that. So the human side, longer path to impact, but once you have that impact, strategically, it lasts much longer. Yeah, got it. Yeah, that's an interesting concept where, you know, a technical control Right. You change a process, you buy a piece of technology, you implement it, and there's probably some maintenance to it, but it's it's largely within your control where uh, you know, changing behavior is obviously a lot more, I would say, artful. Um, so I'm curious to understand maybe what are the, the common behaviors that you see organizations need to change or, or augment? And well, that goes right back to, first of all, what are your top human risks? The two most common risks are phishing and passwords. So mm -hmm. for example, phishing, what are the key behaviors that manage phishing risks? I can give you three. One, learner can describe and explain what phishing is and the dangers related to it. Two, learner can identify the most common indicators of a phishing attack. Three, learner can explain and demonstrate how to report a suspected phishing email. Those three key behaviors right there really help dramatically reduce risk. Now, same thing on the password side. Learner can explain and demonstrate how to create a strong password. Learner can explain and demonstrate how to use a password manager, MFA. Learner can explain why sharing passwords is risky. So once again, it starts with the risk. Then I tend to find it's easy to identify the behaviors. You just need to think about it for a moment. Yeah. I know in just preparing for this the other day, I uh, came across a, a document that was, I think, uh, I, I forgot the exact name, but it was essentially like stages of maturity for a security awareness program that I, I guess you and, and SANS have created as a, you know, a way to measure it and, and track these sorts of things. And if I remember correctly, the last piece was uh, sort of metrics and you've got you know, metrics in place to help answer how are we doing in this area? Um, so can you, you speak to that in terms of maybe some sample metrics that you see organizations use uh, that, that they're, they're tracking and then, you know, what does good look like? Yeah, absolutely. So the whole idea behind the maturity model is a very simple model to A, benchmark where you are, but also provide a model of where you want to go and how to get there. 
And the whole idea is to really be mature. Not only are we changing behavior, not only are we impacting culture, but we have the metrics framework to demonstrate that change. So for example, fishing simulations are a very popular metric. Why? A, they measure a very important risk, fishing, but B, it's very easy to measure. But even then we've seen it mature. People used to measure click rates. You know, what's our click rate? 5%, 10%. But now organizations have matured. They're doing things like, uh, what's our report rate? How fast are people reporting suspected phishing emails? And then not what's our click rate, but what's our repeat clicker rate? You know, if you have somebody that only clicks once in their entire career, that's training. If you have somebody falling victim every month to a simulations, they represent high risk. Those are the individuals you want to track and be concerned about. MFA, if you're rolling out MFA, what's the MFA adoption? Password manager adoption. But you can also use technologies like DLP to track are people accidentally sending sensitive documents to people they shouldn't. So lots of different ways to measure. But if I want to identify what's good look like, I always start with something more fundamental. Do you have somebody dedicated full time to run your security awareness program? Nothing breaks my heart more than I walk into an organization of and they have 50 people on their security awareness. I'm sorry, they have 50 people on their security team. And out of those 50 people, you know, half of one person is focused on the human side and the other 49 plus are dedicated to the technical side. And then they wonder why people keep falling victim to attacks because mm -hmm. we're not investing. So for me, good, I start with, hey, do you have somebody dedicated full-time running your awareness program? Is that person assigned to and part of the security team? And the more fundamental questions like that. And then if they are doing all those right steps, we can get into behavior, culture, and metrics. Yeah, got it. Okay. Frankly, uh, this is the first time I've, I've chatted with someone on the show who's you know, been explicitly focused on, on the human side of cyber risk and has such a pronounced focus on, uh, on, on security awareness and, and building a secure culture. Um, so I'm curious to see maybe in your experience, what's the common background for folks in this role or in this space? Like yourself, I know you had a technical background and then kind of gravitated to it, but I'm, I'm curious to understand because it's different than a lot of InfoSec roles, which are, are much more technical in nature where the technical helps here, but it's also a lot of psychological and, and people relationships. Um, so I'm curious, what's the, maybe the traditional background? So right now, there is no traditional background. In some ways, that's a benefit. If you go to a security awareness conference, you're going to see a more diverse demographic. It'll be about half men, half women. And you'll see people with technical backgrounds, but you'll also see people with communications, marketing backgrounds. First of all, having a technical background has its advantages, but also its disadvantages. A lot of times, security awareness professionals that are highly technical not only don't have the background in psychology and communications, but if you're highly te technical, technology comes easy for you. You totally get MFA, VPN, FDE, SSO, you know, you get all this technology. But the problem is, is when you try to communicate it, you assume it's easy for everyone else. 
Oh, they yeah. understand the why. VPNs, that's really simple. So a lot of times, highly technical security awareness professionals struggle on the communication side because they're so used to technology. Whereas with somebody that doesn't have that highly technical background, they'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's this MFA thing again? Step yeah. back and re-explain it. And those people that may not be highly technical have some advantages because they're very similar to the audience. They're, so they're like, hey, if we, we're not sending out this email until I understand it. Then once I understand it, that means they'll understand it. So the backgrounds tend to be very, very diverse. One of the things I am seeing is organizations that are looking for and hiring full-time security awareness professionals. And I've seen an explosion in the past six months in this. It's, I mean, exponentially grown. I am seeing organizations less interested in the technical expertise and more interested in the change management, communications, organizational change expertise. Because we already have a massive team of highly technical experts. The last thing that we need is just one more technical expert. We need somebody to work with the security team to help communicate, engage, and train our workforce on security. Ultimately, security awareness to me is all about making security simple for the workforce. It's already simple for the security team, but it's their job and passion. Right. Now we've got to translate and make it simple for the workforce. Love it. Cool. Well, I know we just have a few minutes left, so let's go ahead and pivot into the uh, the quick fire round. Um, so basic premise is I ask you a couple of quick questions and you share whatever comes top of mind. Sound good? Fire away. All right, sweet. Uh, what book are you currently reading? Um, Crap, I forgot the title of it. I'm currently reading a book on, I'd have to look it up. It, right now, I am reading a book published in 2006 on how to change behavior for mass in groups, not how to change in behavior for individuals, but mass groups. And I'm just forgot the name of the book. <laughs> no, it's, it's all good. Is there another book maybe that you recall the title of that you've read recently that was uh, you know resonant? Oh, on this very topic? Absolutely. I just recently yeah. finished Perry Carpenter's book on security culture. That cool. is a fantastic one. And I'm also going to be doing a quick, uh, while we're talking here, I'm pulling up, what's the name of the book I'm reading? But go ahead. <laughs> Uh, then next question is, as you made the transition from uh, maybe a more technical role into now, uh, you know, a, a teaching and coaching role, I'm curious to understand maybe some some lessons learned uh, throughout your experience with teaching and coaching, specifically for security leaders. You know, our, our focus here is to talk about the non-technical aspects of the security industry, and a big focus of that is leadership. Um, and obviously a component of leadership is is mentoring and coaching and, and developing. So I'm curious, maybe a few big lessons learned or observations that you'd like to share about coaching uh, and teaching specifically. So first of all, the book is called Herd. Um, Herd. <laughs> but the whole idea of coaching and teaching is, first of all, just taking a step back, is I'm beginning to see the CISO role is less about your technical skills and more about your business skills and people skills. And it's very interesting that you asked that question. Next month, SANS is hosting a security conference just for CISOs. It's their Security Leadership Summit hosted by Frank Kim. If you look at the topics of this CISO event, it's not all about ransomware or things like that. It's 
how to build a security team, how to build a security culture, how to improve your communications. It's all the soft skills, people skills, business skills. So one of the things that I would recommend to CISOs is obviously you need the human side. But the key thing I've learned from building a good security team is don't interview people purely on their technical skills. Interview them not only on their people skills, but their passion. Quite often, not quite, but sometimes your most technically gifted people can also be arrogant or egotistical, which quickly builds a toxic security team. And your security team quite often drives your security culture. So what ends up happening is I don't hire or build teams anymore based on their technical skills. I base them on their values, like their passion to learn, their willingness to work with others, things like that. So my favorite interview question, if I'm hiring somebody for the security team, my first question will be, tell me about your personal lab at home. And if their eyes explode and they're like, yeah, my lab, I got it set up, da, 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 and I see a lot of passion and drive to learn, that's an individual I want to hire. But if they're like, lab at home, then I'll ask, well, if you don't have a lab at home, how are you continuing to learn? You know, like you asked, what books are you reading? What community forums do you belong into? And it, I don't see them belonging to any community groups, books, trying to learn online. If they lack that passion and drive, regardless of how technical they are, then that's probably somebody I don't want on the team. Yeah, no, I love that question. And it's a, a great segue into the final one uh, on the subject of, of learning and advice. If you could go back in time and get a drink with your 20-year-old self, uh, what advice would you give him? About what? Life in general? The cybersecurity? Life, life in general. Yeah. Um, just do it. It sounds like the Nike thing. Just do it. So when I started my own company... My biggest regret was I wish I had done it earlier. Um, you know, the whole idea when I started teaching at Sands, wish I did it earlier. When I wrote the new classes, we, we, so if you've got that idea and you want to try it out, don't wait for the perfect time. The perfect time is now. Love it. Cool, Lance. Well, it was a pleasure to meet you. I appreciate you taking the, uh, the time to chat with me, um, but I really enjoyed the discussion. Oh, absolutely, Joe. And thanks so much. Very excited to talk about the human side. In a lot of ways, this is the future of cybersecurity. Love it. Well, thanks, Lance.